C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to Hollywood Godfather. We're in our hundreds of hours now. I love it. And thank you for your support. And I, I want to uh, welcome my co-writer of our fabulous book that's still selling, Hollywood Godfather, Patrick Picciarelli. Hi, Gianni. Hi, Megan. And Megan. Hi, guys. Our young genius, our millennium's. Or she's ever she's got she wears about ten hats right now. Megan <laughs> Haran. Oh, getting there, you're getting there. Hello, yeah, that was that was the closest it's been yet. Okay, well Good thank job. you. Thank you. Hope you're all having a wonderful days out there, wherever you may be in this heat or not. But uh tonight we have a very heated show. And people have written in several times and mentioned why aren't you talking about Tony Spalaccio in the days of Vegas and and on and on and on? So being that we've been getting more pressure to do it, I thought now that Mr. Frank Collada, the underboss of that little hole in the wall gang is passed on. See, a lot of people have to understand the audience that, you know, when these guys are alive, you never know where they're going, especially when they're gonna be dying they may want to clean a slate, and I may be part of that slate. So I'd rather wait for them all to pass on. And uh, fortunately, and I say fortunately, Mr. Collada passed with COVID just recently. So um, to bring you to Las Vegas when they arrived, it was 1971. Uh, anybody that knows me, I've already been there many, many years under the radar since 1957. So you can imagine the shock with me because my association with Chicago at that time was on a higher level than street guys. And they were with Joey Ayupa's gang, Joey the Dove. And he ordered them to move there to run things for Chicago. And we'll get into how they ran it soon. <laughs> so with that said, I want to call on our detective and see what uh, kind of uh, facts and fiction you found out. Okay. Uh, Oscar Goodman was, uh, uh, and still is, uh, quite a character. Oh, you're bringing Oscar in already? They, they, didn't, even they didn't even create a crime yet. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the guy, the, the guy's everywhere. He's, he's a, a, a huge personality, uh, contrary. I'll put it this way, if he was to try to be the mayor in some other city in, in, in the country, I don't think he would have had that easier of a time. But in Vegas, you know, uh, he was uh, he was all over the place. He had he had a uh, he was an attorney and he had a history prior to becoming mayor of Vegas uh, in representing underworld figures. And he didn't hide it. He was proud of it. I mean, everybody deserves a defense. And uh, he didn't care who you are if uh, you wanted a, a, an attorney. You, if you uh, have the money. And you have the money, of course. You went to Oscar Goodman, and this propelled him eventually to a career in uh, in politics. But, uh, Johnny, you mentioned uh, Spilotro. He also uh, represented over the years Mayor Lansky, Mickey Scarfo from Philadelphia. Bad Herbie Blitzstein. Did you know him? I don't know that name. Herbie, Herbie Blitzstein. Well, Herbie Blitzstein, they killed. 
Herbie was part of the the hole in the wall gang. He was part okay. of his crew. All right. Uh, Herbie Herbie was uh, well. Go ahead. Keep, keep going. Phil yeah. uh, Leonetti. He's Philly, right? Yeah. Uh, Lefty Rosenthal was portrayed in the movie Casino by Robert De Niro. Uh, and Jimmy Shagra. Jimmy Shagra. Uh, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he uh, was a big drug dealer in the 1970s. He was a trafficker. I wouldn't call him a dealer. He was high level. And uh, he was on trial uh, before a judge by the name of Harrelson, a, a federal judge who was, or who had a, a reputation of being a very tough, strict, but by the book, tough guy who handed out long sentences. So, uh, uh, Chagra decided, well, the, 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 the best way to get a fair trial in uh, Harrelson's court was to kill Harrelson. And, uh, uh, no, pardon me. Was, uh, his, uh, the, the, the judge's name wasn't Harrelson. Was, I forget what the, what the judge's Oh, John Wood. Pardon me. John Wood. I got the names mixed up. Uh, John Wood was the judge. He hired a hitman named Harrelson uh, who took on the job. Now, since the Civil War, when they created federal judges, he, uh, Wood was the first one ever to get assassinated. I think you know, taking on a hit like that is uh, an awesome responsibility, and uh, you, you could you have to be at the top of your game. Now, this hitman, Harrelson, coincidentally or uh, infamously, was the father of actor Woody Harrelson. Still is. <laughs> well, I passed away, but. Uh, 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 Woody Harrelson took a lot of heat for that. Not that he had anything to do with his father. I hadn't seen him for years. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, Chagra was represented by uh, Oscar Goodman. And uh, he also, uh, uh, Oscar Goodman went on to appear in uh, many films. He was in Casino. Uh, he was in quite a few other films. He was uh, he in was my voted. film also. I put him in my films. Yeah, what was that? My film was after after Casino, actually. My, okay. my film was, uh, what was the name of my film? That's funny that you blew me away with this other time. No, but I, I, I did a movie with uh, William Forsythe, Maria Conchito, Alonzo, uh, Robert Davi, and uh, one, one person you're writing about now, Ed McMahon. He played the governor. And uh, Justice for All? What's that? Justice for All? No, no, that's what's in the movie. Um, Jesus, how did I... Got movie. No, uh, what the hell was the name of the movie? They keep changing it, that's why. It was, it was one title, then they sold it another title, they keep changing it. But anyway, he, he was in it, he, he, he always plays himself, as you know. You know and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think he got, he got too involved with uh, public recognition and adulation and 2003, Goodman, when he was mayor, uh, Goodman was voted the least effective public official in uh, something called Review Journal's annual reader. So it wasn't the magazine, it was the constituents. Yeah, it was just a local paper. But, you know, that, that's what happened to Bruce Cutler, too, you know. Bruce Cutler got so enamored with John Gotti that they disbarred him, first of all. At least, uh, I mean, I, I still can't believe that, you know, uh, Oscar went on to be mayor for so many years, now his wife is. When did you first meet him? 
I met him early on in life. I was, don't forget, I was there in 57, I was an attorney. Everybody down that was, was had an office across the street in the courtroom, right down near the federal building on Las Vegas Boulevard. But I don't know why we're going so far into Oscar when I was trying yeah. to build a foundation for Tony Spalatro. Let's go there. Yeah, because we went to 10 mobsters already that he was a, he brought in. I mean, he brought in all those guys you mentioned. Yeah. Collada, all he brought, because Joey Ayupa told him to go down there and run things for them, which at that time was the Stardust and some other holdings. Unbeknownst to them, Nick Nitty and I were already down there for a long time, like I said, in 57, and then in the 60s, we started uh, our banking business with the, with the Vatican, and uh, we were under the radar to everybody, and including the street mobs of Chicago, even though a big part of it was Tony Accardo, and Accardo was the boss over all of them. And um, that's why Sam eventually, you know, because he controlled Joey, and Joey couldn't control Spilatro. But I, I was trying to get into the how this all happened so our audience could follow suit before they even hired Oscar Goodman. Yeah, I was wondering how, if you had the information when he started representing Mr. Spilatro. It was early on. Uh, this was in the, uh, let me catch up here. Got a lot of notes. This was uh, in 73, the, wasn't it? He started in the early 70s, late 60s, really. He was representing Spalatro, late late 60s? Well, not not only him. He's, oh, you're just talking about Spalatro? Yeah. They, they don't mention a date when uh, Spalatro was taken on as a client. 72, just so you know. There's just lists of, uh, of uh, underworld figures that yeah. Goodman represented. And it just said one of his most notorious clients was Tony the Ant, Spalatro. Yeah. Well, that happened after he got there. I met him on New Year's Eve, not that I wanted to. I was with Nick Nitty at the Stardust Hotel, and uh, we were in the Starlight Lounge about 2 o'clock in the morning. We just celebrated New Year's Eve, and uh, we were watching Freddie Bell on stage. And, and you know, and we were kibitzing, we were there all the time. And then they brought Frank, I don't remember how I can remember this, but Frankie Bella, the maitre d', also from Chicago, originally him and his brother. And uh, he brought him over, and Nick knew him well, and he wanted to meet me, which I didn't even know who the guy was at the time, and didn't want to know. And um, that started a love-hate relationship that early on. And then uh, How did he look, these guys, they always want something. What oh, did he yeah. want to do? Well, he just wanted to know who I was, and he wanted to in, indirectly let me know that he's in town now and he's running things. And I even ignored what he said because I'm not going to get into he didn't even know what I was doing. I'm not about to tell him. I was, I was, you know, around Chicago early, early on when uh, I became a client. Of, of, of Barry Schlotnick. I mean, not Barry Schlotnick. Sidney um, um, Korshak. When my first meeting with him before I met uh, Cardo. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't about to start saying what I'm doing, 
do what you're doing, do whatever you want to do. I, I didn't care. And I think he felt that air about me because, you know, I already had my Rolls Royces and my Ferraris and he must have did his homework and he was trying to intimidate me from that point on. And he did that till the day he got buried alive in Indiana. Did you have uh, State Street at that time when he tried? No, to not run? yet, no. State Street came in the 80s. But I did have Tiffany's at, at the... Uh, the Tropicana Hotel that uh, Elvis Presley opened for me. And then, uh, then as you know, I went on to do The Godfather, the book, and then went back, and then I was building a hotel on the corner of Harmon and Colville Lane, which got them all upset, these young guys that didn't know who the hell is this guy. And, and it was just that kind of a situation and then Frank Collada moved in my building under another name because he would have never got a lease. And then I had these guys around me all the time, all the time. But he was told a couple of times that, you know, we're not going to tell you why, but that guy's a good friend of ours, period. But that didn't mean a whole lot of it with this guy. But um, What, uh, uh, for the listeners who don't know, what precipitated the infamous shooting at your house? Oh, that's way later on. That uh, that was through a lot of years of irritation when the, he realized I wasn't going to... One of the first one thing that when I opened State Street, and by that time Spalatro was already in the Black Book, which for the listeners who don't know what the Black Book is, there's a book in Nevada that if you are in it, you can't go into any gaming licensed establishment, period. And if you do, the owner, if he knew it was you, is supposed to call the gaming commission, get get you arrested and get out of taken out. So I used that so many times when he used to show up at State Street, and even two or three, four o'clock in the morning, I wouldn't let him in. And How many that, people in this book? Excuse me. How many people in, uh, are listed in the black book? About probably now only six or seven. How would how would you how would one get on that? You have to be notorious felon. Felons have to register in the state of Nevada. It's the only state, if you want to visit it, you actually give up your constitutional rights of freedom, and you have to declare you're there within 24 hours if you're a felon and let the police department know where you stand. And if you're caught, you can go to jail, or they escort you and take you right to the airplane. It's so still that way. So this black book was pretty exclusive. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people here. No, I know. I know. When and they it, say it's a book, it's, it's more like a black pamphlet. It, maybe, it's a, maybe one page of a book. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, uh, but you know, I, I, he's like so many other people, including my father, because I don't want to put all short people in the same category. Tony I really had a problem with, with his stature. And that's why he was called the ant. He was so small. But what he was did, a powerful he, guy. What did he tell people the reason he was called the ant? I don't know if he did. I, I never got to know well, him that well. From what I heard over the years, that it was short for Anthony. Oh, okay. That's what he said. Well, that's course. good. Because I'm a friggin' midget. You know? No, but I, I never, you know, again, I, I, I never liked the guy until the day he died. To me, it was like I knew it was a Tom Bomb. That was gonna go off, and it, it did eventually. 
And uh, it went off in your living room. Well, no, that was that was no. I'm talking about his bomb happened in Indiana. <laughs> I felt bad for his brother Michael because you know they buried him alive with him, but he was using Michael as his shield to take him to Chicago when they call, finally called him in because you know they had several meetings, the uh, syndicate about calming this guy down because he was ruining it for everybody. And what a lot of people don't know, including our audience, this is when Howard Hughes was coming to Vegas and infiltrating the gaming business. And they had to get a free citizen to do that because the federal government wasn't allowed. And they gave him a very lucrative aircraft contract with the understanding he's getting the contract so that he starts buying up casinos so they can start moving in and taking positions in the properties Hughes owned to try to get down to where, how come people that are cocktail waiters who are really making 300 a day are putting down $50. They started that way. They were trying to make it seem like it was very civil, but basically they were trying to find out where the skim money was going, the millions and millions of dollars, because they can never track it. And, uh, you know, uh, the only sad thing about all that, and I'm glad it happened to, to, to Tony, not Michael, but I, I was glad it was over because I was doing it for so long, I knew there was something gonna blow up, and uh, talking about, you know, it's carrying money, the amount of money I was carrying. And Nick Nitty and I were geniuses with it. We had the green light from every organization, including the Vatican, which was bothering these guys because Spalaccio came to fame just what he was in Chicago. He brought it there. He wasn't satisfied overlooking the gaming stuff. He created a gang, which I'm sure you read about, and even Megan called the Holy Wall Gang that Frankie Collada ran, and there were a bunch of burglars. And um, did you do any research on this, Meg? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I'm curious, why was it called Hole in the Wall? Where did that name come from? Because they cut holes in the wall to get to the, they, they would go to a beauty salon and cut a hole in the wall to get to the jewelry store. They would go to a supermarket. Really? That's how they got the name. Oh, that's <laughs> so interesting. Crew. It was a sophisticated crew, aside from... Oh, uh, robberies, yeah. Oh, no, they had... Yeah, I mean, they, they, they circumvented alarm systems. Oh, no, they brought uh, it... They brought no, it a, yeah, that was Bluestein. Herbie, Herbie was a, a, a good burglar. They killed him. I can't believe they did that. He was one of their guys. And, and all this time, really, the cops knew who was doing it. They just couldn't get them. Yeah, they just couldn't catch him. You know, yeah. that, they had to catch him in the act, obviously. And then they bought a How many people were in that thing? Uh, six to eight guys. They used to bring other guys if they need them in from Chicago. But they were the regular guys. Then they opened a restaurant. Then they opened the jewelry store to fence all the jewelry they were robbing on Sahara <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> but they were eventually caught, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. Big time. Big time. They were all being part of a trial when all this stuff started going down. And then obviously Tony was brought in because of all, I mean, he had to calm down. They wouldn't, he wouldn't. You know, it was a similar thing that happened to, to Joe Colombo early on. 
in New York when he started picking the FBI building, realizing, you know, you're in a secret organization, but their egos and their power got so big, and Spalaccio had a lot of power. And he, you know, he basically, I mean, he abused Lefty Rosenthal and wound up stringing out his wife on drugs. And she, I mean, the only reason uh, she married even Lefty, they made Lefty Rosenthal because he could not get a gaming license. They made him the entertainment director of the Stardust Hotel. But he really was the odds maker for the first big sports book in Nevada and in the, in the United States. And that was at the Stardust. They were doing millions a day with it because he was a great handicapper. But um, I mean, I mean, anybody who saw Casino, they should revisit it because now you know the underlying stories of what was going on. And Spalaccio got carried away with his power and listened to nobody and caused Sam Giancana getting shot. Because the last time they brought Sam in, they said, bring him back. And the kid wouldn't come back. He said, I'll come back when I want. And so they paid him a visit in his basement, and one of his closest friends shot him while he was making sauces and peppers. But, um, and that still didn't scare Spalatro. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, we're, uh, it's, it's crazy, and this is how in 72, all these trials and all the money he had, that's when he and Oscar built a tremendous relationship. And then Oscar, you know, was awarded a lot of other cases that normally trickled down as they did even with the Gottis and Bruce Cutler and all of them. What was his, what was his track record with Spalaccio? He, Spalaccio stayed out of jail, I mean. Oh yeah. Oh no, he, no, I mean he stayed out of jail and using the same tactic, tactics that, you know, the Gottis did in New York, a lot of the witnesses never showed up for trial. <laughs> surprise. That's how he stayed out of jail. Yeah, you know, and uh, so it was, uh, it was uh, for me, I wasn't so worried about it because I had my own crew. We were a lot smarter, obviously none of us. I mean, the only thing, I lost one person to Spalatro's crew, who's a guy that I really, really liked, and he, yeah, I, I took him out of Gene Prison, and uh, then I be, he became my houseboy, Ralphie, and worked at State Street. And he always used to say, him and Georgia Catron and different guys that I had around me, I took a bullet for you, boss, for what you did for me. I said, no, ho hopefully you don't have them. And uh, one night at a pizza place we used to go to all the time, right off of Maryland Square Shopping Center, and uh, it was the shopping, shopping mall, actually, uh, Wonder World. And here comes a car slowly rolling down. It was a, a, a slight hill in the parking lot. And we used to go to the same pizza place at 6 in the morning. And I always kept my cars not parked parallel because I didn't want them dinged. And I wanted to walk to my car with nobody around them and being able to see under them as I'm walking, approaching it. And uh, I guess they knew that. And Collada is rolling down, and as he was getting close, he picked up speed, and Ralphie pushed him to the ground and took four shots and actually died in my arms. 
I saw it was Spalatro, but I wasn't about to say it was when they came and asked me, so I didn't see it was a drive-by, because that, that would have caused another can of worms. But they were just getting notches on the gun that, you know, eventually took them down. I thought for sure he would go down even before my situation, as you mentioned, when they shot up my house on a Sunday. And that was another dumb move on them because my my l neighbor was Rex Bell. We lived on a cul-de-sac on La Paloma Drive. And Rex Bell happened to be the district attorney of Nevada. You don't shoot up his neighborhood on a Sunday afternoon and get two blocks without the helicopters in the air. <laughs> I mean, they did so many. That. Why, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of a rarity, even for, for Spalatro, because he knew the house was full. He always used to have, uh, have a thing at your house on Sundays. Sunday Every sports. Sunday, yeah. Why? What, what precipitated it? What put him over the edge? I think it was just because he thought, he thought once he did that, he would control me. But, you know, fortunately, my, my daughter's dining room was in the back of the house, and he started spraying my house from the living room across. Well, by that time, we were all laying on the ground. And I don't know why I had this idea. <laughs> when I poured this house, everything was built on a slab down there. So I was extending my house. And I, and I had a couple of, you know, I, I was the general contractor, and I just subbed it all out because I didn't want nobody to know what I was doing. And when I poured the floor for the dining room and the new garage and all that, I, key, I did a key foundation, which then I poured in place up to windowsill height, poured, poured in place concrete, reinforcement concrete with steel bars. So if you laid on the floors, and my house was on a little hill, which I created also, you'd be shooting up at it, and you'd be shooting all that reinforced concrete, so we can lay there all day and empty your guns all night, all night, we'd be okay. But still, my next flight the next day was to go to Chicago, and uh, because, you know, we had so much at stake, not just my kids' lives and all this, but this guy was terrorizing people he shouldn't have been. And then he found out the hard way, unfortunately. But that was only, mine was only one thing. I mean, he was, he, they had so many unsolved murders with him, knowing he did them. He shot a lady in her kitchen down in San Diego. And, uh, and her husband heard a shot and came back in. And by the time the cops come, the coffee was still hot. That was how brazen they were. But, you know, there were so many things. And, and, and uh, you know, again, Oscar Goodman took on these things like he was representing a Boy Scout. They'd walk to court with the news media. I mean, it was international news media now that we're covering them because there was so, you know, so high profile, all these interstate killings and everything. I'm just... Um, I, okay, go ahead. This is fascinating stuff. I mean, I... I read about that incident in, in, in your house. Uh, I mean, it was a house full of full of civilians and kids. I know. You know, I mean. No, he was trying to send a message. He was with. He, he had help for that, I would assume. Oh man, yeah, he brought outside guys in. Yeah, he brought people in. Yeah. Was there any legal ramifications or? Oh, they were arrested, but they said nothing. You know, they were hired. 
somebody met them in San Diego with an envelope, hired them. And, you know, he was pretty smart in what he was doing. But there was nobody in San Diego that wanted me dead. I knew that. <laughs> or maybe they did, but not, no, not to that you know extent. It so, took all that time. So he was down there for how long? How many years? Excuse me? He was down there for how many years raising hell before he was taken out? Oh, what, what year did he die? Um, 79? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. he was there He was there yeah. a good nine, ten years, eight or nine years. Well, it took him a while, didn't it? I mean... <laughs> oh, no. It, oh, no. I mean, you know, he it, it took a while even to get to where he was because he wasn't that noticeable the first two or three years. And then he just, you know... More more news broke out, and more cases broke out, and and um, I mean, he, but you know, he's a, a person that destroyed many many families, and not you know Kansas City, Detroit. Everybody wanted him because, as I, I mapped out one other time, every major hotel was represented by a mob family. May it be. The Purple Gang in Detroit with the Riviera Hotel, even um, uh, uh, what's in not Wickless, but uh, oh Jesus, he had the Dunes for years. Um, Morishanka, Morishanka represented uh, Raymond Petriaka and Bob and um, Boston. Every hotel, St. Louis was the Aladdin, so he didn't just destroy what Chicago had. Or what New York had, he destroyed. See, that's why they always said no, the safest place to be is in Las Vegas, because there would never be a gang war. There'd never be crime on the street, because the mob ran it, and the mob ran it that well. If you wanted to do something, take it out to the desert or on Lake Mead, but don't make it hit the papers. And that went on for years. That happened before, in, during the '40s, with Bugsy Siegel, long before. The, this maniac Spalatro got there, but he destroyed it. Spalatro's brother was well thought of. He oh, my God. Michael? Oh, my God, yeah. So taking him out, I mean, was uh, an extra added bit of cruelty. I mean, did they need to do that? I mean, Spalatro was going to die anyway. They're in this, the uh, listeners who aren't aware of it, they, they lured them out to a, 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 a wheat field. No, no, uh, they picked him up. No, no, they didn't lure him anywhere. They picked him up at O'Hare, and then they realized they were going to Indiana. All the hell right. No, it's, a, it's only an hour away. <laughs> Why kill Michael? Well, Michael had to go, and they did it deliberately to uh, just abuse Tony. Tony had to watch his brother being beat to death. And buried alive, just to show him, and they beat him with baseball bats to send a message of who had him killed. And the guy's nickname was Joe Batters, and that's a Cardo. No, it's uh, there, there was a scene even in the movie Capone, where Capone took a bat away from a guy who happened to be. Tony Spalaccio, in the early days, because he was a bodyguard, him and Yale Cohen, who just passed recently, not recently, but Yale and I are very, were very close right till the end. And they were bodyguards to Capone, but they did all the work with baseball bats. They were legal to carry in cars, 
and they made no noise. But uh, that's why Michael and everybody felt bad about it. Because first of all, Tony did that. He took his brother with him. Come, come with me to New York. I have a funny feeling I may not be coming back. And uh, because, you know, you can only stretch that rubber band so many times and walk away. No, he was taking, the, taking his brother there for insurance. They're not going to hurt him. Everybody likes him. Right. That's all. He'd buy another Robert. day and disappear. Yeah. He thought, but that didn't happen. But, you know, when we, when we go through uh, crime life, as I have done in my, in my past, all these guys, that, the newcomers, like even Gotti, Gotti destroyed, destroyed the five families in New York. He brought so much attention to everybody that, you know, it was uh, what he wanted to do, and he did it. He didn't listen to nobody. He never went to a commission. He, he, you know, look what he did to uh, Tommy Bellotti and Paul Castellano. He didn't go to nobody. He planned the hit. He said it was disrespectful to O'Neill that they passed over him from being the, the boss. But, you know, you, you just don't make out your own decisions. I mean, Carlo Gambino had a reason. Paul Castellano was a major earner, and he left O'Neill as the street boss. But that didn't sit well with Gotti, and now they're all dead. And, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm so glad my whole audience and the FBI or anybody else to listen. I'm so glad I'm on the periphery of all that because I've always been on the outside looking in. I just happen to know this stuff. And it always just, like I, right now as I sit and reflect on it, I'm so happy that I never joined that club. And people used to say, why don't you, you know, so I, I don't even join the Boy Scouts. I, I didn't become an altar boy. I did that for a minute. I realized I shouldn't be there either. But, you know, that's it. It's a, like uh, Groucho Marx once said, I wouldn't belong to any organization that we have as a member. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean. But I always, I always like asking Megan because this is such a, a strange world that you're eavesdropping in on. What, what, I mean, you've seen most of these movies. To realize they really, these really happened. This stuff really happened. What, what's yeah. your impression of this? I mean, we've done, this is episode 129. I mean, the stories that I've heard, it's not like this is anything <laughs> too shocking or too new, to be quite honest with no, you. No, I know that, but I, I still, if you don't mind, like to hear your opinion because you, as I always said, when from day one to now 129, you represent a broad, younger audience that's not privy, thank God, to this life. And I'm always interested to hear, you know, because I, I know your family well enough that, you know, the only crime you saw was on television, on, on your friend Laura Norda's shelf. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I'm, I'm just, how do you feel about it? What, sitting there, listening to these true life crimes of people, you know, we're, we're exploiting. Well, uh, let me interject something here. You know, I've been around a lot too. I'm, uh, I'm a, I got about two or three years on Megan. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> it still shocks me to, to try to comprehend how people would actually do this stuff. Uh, granted, he had he has psychological problems. Felocha was a true psychotic. Oh yeah, 
But I mean, to just go about your life every day knowing that you're going to possibly beat the hell out of somebody or kill them, uh, intimidate them. I mean, I can't, as a rational person, and I'm putting words in Megan's mouth, I guess, but as a rational person, how could anybody do that? I just don't understand it. And you saw a lot more <laughs> than she did because you were on the job for 20 years. Yeah, I, I see it constantly. I mean, these people will, uh, will kill you, go out to dinner. Oh, yeah, hello. Yeah, uh, no catch, no empathy at all. And some of them, they did, some of them kept alive in the trunk while they went to have dinner because they got hungry <laughs> one, out, while they were taking them out to bury them on Staten Island. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's insane. It's insane. They, uh, all right. Yeah, it really is crazy how, how murder is just such a simple solution to problems well, in you know, it's, it's that a, world. Definitely final. You know, they it's, said, um, it's an extreme solution to a not so complicated problem. How about you just give them a good talking to? <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> but that that's how our, you know, our, our next show next week is based on Oscar Goodman because it's amazing the transition, as you pointed out, Pat, he represented the list of people you just mentioned is insane. And that's, I, and I don't know of any other person that ever came out of being in that life as an attorney, being around that life, being near attorneys, can go on to be a mayor for eight years. Not only that, he was a popular mayor for the most part. Oh my God, he did a lot, which we'll talk about next week. I mean, he did a lot. And the, and the, on, on the opposite side of the coin of what he was doing, too, I mean, it was amazing. He, he got a lot done. And maybe it's just the mentality of Vegas that, you know, he was a celebrity, and he was a celebrity, like you said. I mean, Oscar, and a nice guy. I mean, we're not trying to throw him under the bus. He represented criminals. That was his, you know, there's a lot of guys that I'm still friends with are still doing it, you know. But, um, but again, they didn't go on to become such a colorful mayor and movie star, and, and now his wife is mayor, even. It's, 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 it's crazy. All right. If I can ask one more question before we move you could, on, you could do anything you want, please. Um, I read, I read that Spalatro had once had an affair with Frank Rosenthal's wife. How does a situation like that unfold when, when something like that comes out? What do you mean once had it? He flaunted it to Lefty Rosenthal. He got her strung out on drugs. She left Le Lefty and moved to a motel. Was seeing him. And they both robbed Lefty. I mean, I mean, to, for, I mean, De Niro played a, an amazing part. Lefty Rosendahl, to me, was probably one of the lowest human beings I ever met in my life. Because, I mean, basically, he knew Spalatro was having his way with his wife. And uh, why don't you buy a gun and blow his brains out? Talking about blowing his brains out, they tried to blow him up. He was the only mob guy that I think when the headlines read that he was blown up in front of Marie Callender's, why not go to the store club? At least Tommy and, and Paul Castellano got shot down in front of Sparks. You know, it's colorful. Marie Callender's, what, we having a piece of apple pie? I mean, <laughs> well, he was fortunate uh, that he was in the car he was in. Otherwise. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, I, mean I, I just got to my club that night 
Marie Callender's that they're talking about is on Sahara Avenue, and my club is right off of Sahara and Paradise Road. And when that car blew up, I mean, we all went outside to see what happened. I thought somebody blew up one of my cars. But fortunately, he was in a, in a, a front-wheel drive new Eldorado, and the chassis was so well-supported that the guy who placed the bomb put it behind the chassis, and that's what saved his life. But that's, I think he was trying to get rid of Lefty and just have, you know, have his wife to himself. I forgot her name. She had such a cr Do you remember her name, Megan? Did you, did you read it? Lefty's wife? Yeah. Yeah, Jerry McGee. Jerry. Because Jerry was a top dancer. At, at She was one of the top line dancers at the Lido de Paris. And that's where, when Lefty met her, you know, she was enamored with the mob, obviously, and that's how they got married. And then she got very strung out on drugs, and he couldn't control her no more. And he kept showering her with more gifts and more gifts. And Sharon Stone played a great part in that. Oh, my God, did she ever. It was great. I would think, I would think, I mean, that, that was one of her better parts, too. Well, I, are we time to go to the mailbag? It is. Yeah, I think it's time. All right. Well, that was who the people who wanted to know about Spalatro and his involvement in Vegas. We just did you a, a 35 minute capsule of it. Um, that was nine years, nine years of his life. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't be happier when he was gone. Let's go make some money. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Patrick Picciarelli, co-host of the Hollywood Godfather podcast, private investigator, and co-author of Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob. How much do you think you know about the infamous Son of Sam serial killings? My new crime novel, Blood Shot Eyes, is a fictionalized version of my real-life private investigation of the Son of Sam case. In this gripping account, Based on fact, private investigator Ray Yale finds himself immersed in this infamous case years after it was supposedly solved by the NYPD and the killer sent to prison for life. Yale uncovers facts which involve a celebrity's involvement and unleash a killer hell-bent on remaining a free man. A psychopathic policewoman, a small-time thief, and a police department cover-up add up to a page-turner of unrelenting suspense. Bloodshot Eyes is available exclusively on Amazon.com. Okay, it's time for the mailbag. Let's see what, right. see what show now, or hear what show now. <laughs> yeah, so I have a few questions for tonight. We will start off with one from Calvin. Calvin says, could you tell me about Joe Watts of the Gambinos and Jojo Carozzo? Nope. They're still very much alive and still very good friends of mine. All right, next is also <laughs> from Calvin. Calvin says, this one is for Pat. I saw the documentary of The Son of Sam, which was very interesting things that I did not know. Could you tell me what you thought about it, if you've seen it, and what you know? I thought, well, this was, you know, some people uh, label that uh, five-part documentary as a conspiracy theory. Uh, I thought it was very accurate. I, 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 I had a part in uh, the, uh, the author who uh, wrote the book. I forgot the name of the book now. The author's name was Maury Terry, and uh, he had uh, hired me as, as a PI to investigate 
some alleged facts to make sure they, they were uh, factual before he put them in the book. And uh, it turned out I, it was supposed to be a videotape of one of the shootings. I couldn't get that tape. I tracked it down uh, to quite a few people who had it. I couldn't get my hands on it. And Penthouse Magazine, who was paying me, uh, said, well, without that tape, you don't, you don't have a story. But I, I was a great admirer of Maury Terry. This guy was a bulldog. And when he got a hold of this story, he saw holes in it immediately. This is the son, the son of Sam uh, killing spree back in the 70s. Uh, I think there was an awful lot to it. It was just too much to disregard. But when David Berkowitz pled guilty, he was the son of Sam, he was the killer. Uh, the, the, the city breathed a sigh of relief and no one was gonna reopen that case. These cases, these infamous cases, and we've spoken about a lot of them, once they're put to bed, once either the killer is in jail or the victim is dead, nobody cares anymore. That's exactly what the, 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 where the politics come in. And that's what happened with the son of Sam. That's what happened to Maury Terry. But the uh, documentary, I think, was even-handed. He talked about his life. Unfortunately, he didn't uh, uh, survive to see it. He, he died a few years ago. But uh, yeah, I thought it was very accurate to answer the question. All right. Next one, I want to share a message from Stephen. Stephen says, I listened to a couple of other podcasts about the mafia, but stumbled upon yours, and I play it while driving, and it sparks some interesting conversations with my Uber passengers and hopefully some new listeners. I use Spotify. I'm at episode seven now, playing catch up, but I love how you paint the picture of what you lived through, and since I love history, this is part of it. As for a guest, would you ever consider Michael Franzese? I'm sure you have crossed circles. Well, have an awesome day, all three of you, and keep doing a great job. That is a very frequently asked question. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I mean, I, I don't know Michael. I knew his father a lot better than my. I don't even know Michael. I knew his father just, he was a legend. And then when he came out, and not too long ago before he passed, he used to go to a restaurant that I frequent and I would go even more knowing who was coming because I knew the maitre d' and he let me know because I loved the guy and I loved his story and his style all his life. But Michael, I think, is eight years younger than me. I mean, most people don't know. I left New York City right after, right, well, even before The Godfather came out in 71, I was gone. In 17, when I was 17 years of age, I was in Vegas before I made The Godfather during the Democratic Convention trying to get Senator John F. Kennedy elected, just being their eyes and ears. So I wasn't had nothing to do with street crimes or gangs or or anything. And you know, I'm, again, Michael himself has reached out for me, but I don't know what I would say. And I'm not going to just sit around and. I mean, you read my book. Most of the stuff is in my book. And the stuff that's not in it, I'm not about to talk about. Like someone just asked me to talk about Joe Watts and, and, and another guy that I'm very friendly with. Is, in fact, they just came out of jail. Hello. But, you know, I don't know what they do. I know, I heard, I read the papers like you guys do. But other than that, I have nothing to say. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry I have to keep saying I'm not going to be on. Sammy the Bull's show. I'm not going to be on Michael's show. I don't. I'm not. You know. I'm not doing that. 
but no, no other reason than I have nothing to add or put to it or nothing in common with them. Fair enough. All right, next I want to share a message from Chris. Chris says, Hi guys, I hope you are all well. I would just like to say the podcast is amazing and the three of you work so well together. For someone like me who is fascinated by mafia history, Gianni's stories are incredible. Thank you all for this podcast. I've binge listened from the start, trying to catch up within two weeks. Love to you all from England. Oh, wow. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much. Across the Hello. pond, you know. Show him across the sure pond. Sure, you sound right? just like him. Hello. So. Um, so also from Chris. Chris says, hey, guys, I hope you're well. My question for Gianni is, do you know anything about Dutch Schultz? I know he died in the early 30s, but was just wondering if you've heard any stories about him. No. But same story as everybody else did. And they're probably exaggerated. But, you know, Dutch Schultz, no, that's, whoa. Long time. Arthur Flegenheimer. Yeah. I'm sorry, Pat? <laughs> Arthur Flegenheimer. That was his name. Oh, that was his name? Yeah, Arthur Flegenheimer. Tell me. Which is a transition to Doug Schultz. Tell me he was on your bowling team. <laughs> I didn't hear you. I said, tell me he was on your bowling team. <laughs> Arthur Flegenheimer. Wow. <laughs> How do you remember that name? Yeah, I would think that, yeah, if I, if I was named Arthur uh, Flegenheimer, I'd be a friggin' butler or something, but not a not a gangster, so he had to change his name. Wow. All right, guys, well, that is all I have for tonight. All right, well, great. Thank you all again. Please, what we, we're hearing, we need to have opinions, uh, fan mail. What, what are they supposed to Reviews. be doing? Reviews. Reviews, that's it. Reviews. We want to expand our audience, so I mean, and thank you all though for, for continuing to support us and telling your friends, and we'll be listening in to you next week again as you listen to us. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me Maybe it's late, but just call me Tell me and I'll be around Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night.